But let's open our Bibles together to the book of Numbers chapter 15 as we continue studying through the book of Numbers together. Numbers chapter 15 picks up here really right on the heels of uh, what we might call uh, a royal mistake, a time in the lives historically of the children of Israel, and they had really, really, really blown it. Now, I'm sure none of you here in this room this evening could ever relate to something like that, right? Uh, Anybody here in their life can think of a time where you just recognize, I just really, really really blew it and you recognize there's one honest person Matt all right someone here has humility thank goodness (laughs) and the consequences then that you know are attached to that so often and that was the case remember we saw numbers chapter 13 and 14 where the children of Israel after having experienced deliverance from Egypt after having experienced miracle after miracle that God had done for them and the ways in which the Lord had shown his favor towards them and his power towards them and told them that he had promised to them a good land flowing with milk and honey and that he would give the land to them, that he wanted to bring them in and to bless them in this land, had come right there to the edge of the promised land and as a result of the negativity and the unbelief of 10 of those 12 spies who had gone in to sort of serve survey the land, uh, looking at the giants in the land and the walled cities and what were legitimate obstacles, but certainly uh, nothing that God could not overcome by his power and strength as he was with his people. Uh, Because of their unbelief, spread a bad report and doubt and unbelief all throughout the congregation and camp of Israel. And the people, therefore, really just turned in their hearts and rejected the Lord. They rejected God's will for their life. They rebelled against God's purpose and God's plan for them and said, uh, there's no way that we'll be able to do this and it would have been better for us to have just uh, gone back to Egypt or it would be better for us just to die here in this wilderness and uh, our children are going to be victims and our wives are going to be destroyed and our families ravaged. Why would God do such a thing? And in essence, God basically really gave to them Uh, exactly what they said about their lives. They said, you know, we we should have just died in this wilderness. And so ultimately what God allows them to do by way of consequence is to have what they settle for in their unbelief rather than experiencing God's best and God's ideal for them. So they then spend, as a result of the consequence, we're going to see God has just told them they will now spend and will continue to study this in the uh, passages and really in the books of the Bible ahead of us as we continue through the Old Testament. They will now experience a 40-year, really, funeral procession where they, for one year, for every one of those days, the 40 days they spied out the land, For 40 years now, they will wander in the wilderness until all of that older generation from 20 and above will die off as the result of their unbelief and their rejection against God's will and not entering into what God intended for them, his promise and his ultimate plan and ideal for them. And really, they spend time wandering in the wilderness and never experiencing that promised life that God intended for them. And we talked about how... These things, the journey in the wilderness, the promised land, the promised land speaks of the the life, the promised life in the spirit. And the sad thing is that they experience deliverance from their slavery in Egypt, 
but yet they never enter into the fullness of the promised blessed life that God intends for them. And instead, they, they just wander around wasting away their days and, and, and experiencing less than everything God intended for them. And you know what? Truth be told, that can happen in the Christian life as well, where people can experience salvation. They experience deliverance from slavery to sin from Jesus Christ and they experience being set free from their bondage to sin but yet then they wander around living a carnal Christian life in the flesh and never fully enter in to the promised life of walking in the spirit and experiencing victory over sin and conquering their enemies and experiencing the promises of God and all the blessed experience that we're intended to experience in the fullness of God's spirit as we enter in and we take possession and, and we receive from God and inherit all the promises of the Christian life that God intends for us to have. And so the children of Israel now have just gotten this news that they will wander for 40 years in the wilderness, that they would not go into the land, the older generation, that instead God said their children would go in, the ones who they said would die and be killed. God says, well, they will be the ones that will actually go in and you'll now wander in the wilderness for 40 years and they've just gotten this news as the result of the consequence of their failure and their rejection to God, which would leave them pretty, uh, certainly disheartened, pretty discouraged. If you can imagine, even the children, the younger generation who heard this news, what they also heard was that they were also going to suffer for the infidelity, the unfaithfulness spiritually of their parents as a result of that. They would go into the land 40 years later, but they're now going to wander around and have to suffer through the wilderness for 40 years as a result of their parents' unbelief and their parents' unwillingness to follow God the way that they should. And the children would now suffer as a result of that. So no doubt this is a time where, again, they have just blown it royally. They've made a major mistake spiritually. They're facing the consequences of their own sin and shortcomings and no doubt somewhat disheartened and discouraged. And it's on the heels of that that chapter 15, verse 1 says, The Lord then spoke to Moses, saying, verse 2, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, Enjoy your time in the wilderness. Oh, he doesn't say that, does he? Look what God says to him. You want to talk about a God of hope, a God of consolation and comfort when we fail and mess up? Look what God says to them. He says, speak to the children of Israel, Moses, and here's what I want you to tell them. Tell them, when you have come into the land that you are to inhabit, which I am giving you. What does God do? He does exactly really what he does. We all know the verse very uh, uh, you know, it's very popular, very famous verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, where God says, I know the thoughts I think towards you, not of harm or of evil, but to give you a future and a hope. You know, it's on all the Bible promise books, all the Christian placards that people make, nice decorations. You might have it in your house somewhere, some beautiful picture that somebody did or somebody made and then you spent your money on. And, and I mean, that verse has been exploited and utilized. It's an incredible promise. It's an incredible, encouraging promise. What many people don't realize, sometimes because they don't study the context of their Bible, that promise was given at one of the lowest points in Israel's history. It was given to them on the heels of one of their greatest failures when God had just said to them, you are now going to spend 70 years in captivity in Babylon for the consequence of your sin 
and I forgive you and I love you, but God was sending them into Babylon to experience chastisement and consequence. Their, their failures still had their consequences, but in the midst of heading into that, but God said, but look, I want you to know something. As you're enduring the consequences for your sin, and as you're going through the hardship and suffering the misfortune, as you eat the bad and rotten fruit of the seeds that you planted, which God, I can't take away from you. As you're eating the rotten fruit and enduring with the consequences of your poor choices, God says, but I want you to know, don't misinterpret that. My thoughts towards you are not evil. My thoughts to you, I'm not moody, I'm not angry at you. I'm not upset with you. Those are the natural consequences of the choices that you made. But he says, but I want you to know that here's my thought towards you. Even as you're struggling under the weight of the consequences for a season, I want you to know I already am thinking about a glorious future that I have ahead for you. I want you to know I'm already thinking about the day that I'm going to get you back out of that and I'm going to restore you and reestablish you and give you a future and a hope. God was already thinking about their future and they were just heading into the midst of the experiences of their failure. And here, once again, you somewhat have the same thing here. I mean, talk about a reassuring thing that God says, tell them, Moses, tell them when you have come into the land. Not that if you do make it to the land, because after what this generation did, who knows what your kids are going to do. God doesn't say that. He says, you tell them when you come into the land. In other words, God was saying, I have full confidence in what I'm going to accomplish in your lives. I have complete confidence as your God that though you at times may be faithless, I'm going to remain faithful and I'm going to fulfill the purposes and plans that I have and I'm going to honor my promise. And because I've made the promise that the descendants of Abraham will be in that land, he says, you tell them when you come into the land that I'm giving you. In other words, God's saying, I haven't withdrawn the promise of God. The promise of God is still available to you. And I look at this as he says this, no doubt what encouragement this would give not only to the parents and the elder generation who had just failed miserably and know their children are going to bear the brunt of the mistakes that they've made in their own relationship with God, how wonderful for them to hear, wow, how awesome that despite what we've done, it's not hopeless for our kids. That God's, God's going to finish a good work in them and he's going to bring them in and they're still going to experience God's best and God's ideal. And what we did has not utterly destroyed what God's still able to do with our children. And how encouraging for that younger generation who realizes they're going to have to wander through the wilderness until all their parents and the elder generation dies off to hear God say, look, it is going to happen. Don't get weary in the well-doing, for in the due season, you will reap. You're going to experience. I am going to bring you into that land still. And as we look at God reiterate his promise to them and his assurance that he will fulfill this in their lives, this reminds me as I look at this that despite the failures of man, though God's promises might get disrupted, if you would, God's promises and God's plans are never going to be destroyed. Yes, I understand when we fail, when people fail, when groups of people fail, when ministries fail, when churches fail, when congregations fail. We at times fail as human beings, but the failures of man, though that may cause God's plans to be disrupted a bit, that will never destroy God's plan altogether because God's a faithful God. And God will ultimately still fulfill and accomplish in time what he intends to do. And this very reassurance demonstrates that God speaking a word of hope amidst or after that major mistake. So he says to them, when you've come into the land that you are to inhabit, which I'm giving to you. And then now from verse three, 
down through verse 11, he reiterates to them, and we saw much of this given in great detail back in Leviticus chapter 1 through 7 as we studied some of the different offerings that God prescribed for them to give. So we, we won't bog you down here with the minutia of this. We talked about that in great length and depth uh, back in the book of Leviticus. But he now reiterates to them about making these offerings when they come into the land. He says, and you make an offering by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a vow or as a free will offering in your appointed feast to make a sweet aroma to the Lord from the herd or of the flock. Then he who presents his offering to the Lord shall bring a grain offering of one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-fourth of a hin of oil. Add one-fourth of a hin of wine as a drink offering, and you shall prepare with the burnt offering or the sacrifice for each lamb. So again, the burnt offering, remember, was that offering of consecration. It was the offering where the entire, uh, uh, I'm going to use the word carcass since we saw it last week, the entire carcass of the animal was put on the brazen altar and the whole thing was burnt and consumed. None of it was eaten or partaken of by the priests or by the worshiper. And the idea was a picture of how, Lord, I want my whole life to just be consumed in the things of God. I, I want to just consecrate everything, Lord. I don't want any part of it. I don't want anyone else to have any part of it. I want you to have it all. And as the whole animal was offered and burned, it was a symbolic way, the burnt offering of, of a complete dedication or consecration of the entire life over to God. Verse 6, he says, Or for a ram you shall prepare as a grain offering two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-third of a hin of oil. And as a drink offering, you shall offer a third of a hint of wine. Again, notice this repeated term, verse 7. There it is again, as a sweet aroma to the Lord. And when you prepare a young bull as a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a vow or as a peace offering, remember that was the fellowship offering as they wanted to have communion with God where you would eat a portion, the priest that was offering it would eat a portion and a portion was offered to the Lord. It was like a, 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 a communal meal that you were having fellowship with God. The peace offering represented that. That shall be offered, verse 9, with a young bull and a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a half of a hin of oil. And you shall bring then the drink offering, uh, half a hin of wine as an offering made by fire. Here's that phrase again, a sweet aroma to the Lord. And thus it shall be done for each young bull, for each ram, or for each lamb or young goat. So here, verse 3 to 12, notice God says to them in verse 2, when you come into the land, I am going to still give you the land. And he says, and when you come into the land, what does God speak of now in verse 3 down through verse 12? He speaks of them worshiping and offering sacrifices unto him in that place of promise. So God, what does he do again? He prophetically, confidently says, when you come into the land and when you begin to worship me, in the fullness of the promised land, in that promised place where I intend for you to be, these are the things I want you to remember. And he restates, as I said, some of the instructions that God already gave to them back in the book of Leviticus about the sacrifices, the burnt offering, the peace offerings, and so forth. A lot of it is minutia and details that we don't relate to, but we're very critical for them because it was a part of their worship life. But what God does again is inspires encouragement and hope because he says, look, when you come into that land, I know that in that land you will be worshiping me. 
I already see you worshiping me in the midst of that promised life of experiencing the fullest ideal of what I've intended for you. And he speaks in these verses, you may not pick up on it, but he speaks of actually adding in some additional things that he didn't speak of earlier into their offerings, adding things in like grain adding things in like oil and wine to make drink offerings and, and adding in a, a hint of oil and a little bit of wine. Now, that's interesting because those things would only be possible, the grain, the oil, the wine, that would only be possible once they entered into the land. See, as they're journeying through the wilderness, wandering in the wilderness, they weren't living agriculturally. They were moving constantly. So they weren't farming and, and growing crops and experiencing the growth of grain. They didn't have vineyards and olive groves to be able to do these things. So God is speaking here of how the time in his mind when he says, there is coming a day when not only are you going to be in the land, but you are going to inherit the vineyards and the olive groves and the fields, all that I promised to you, and you're going to inherit. And when you inherit that, he asks them here confidently to then mingle those things together and so God speaks confidently of how they'd experienced that fruitful life ultimately as they were in the land and speaks of his people worshiping him. And again, we noted that repeated phrase. You see it in verse three. You see it then again in verse seven. We see it a third time there in verse 10. God says, and this shall be a sweet aroma unto the Lord. Now take notice of that because as God speaks of his people worshiping him, he pictures it how? as an obligatory thing that's just nothing but sheer duty and that he requires of them. To, no, he speaks of the worship of his people as something that's a very pleasing experience for him. He describes it as a sweet aroma unto the Lord. Now, that, that it would be like a sweet aroma. Aroma means something you smell. Now, granted, God is not sitting there as they're offering you know, bulls and, and carcasses of animals on the fire going, oh, the smell of flesh. Oh, that's just oh, it's so wonderful. No, it's a picture of how God, in the same way that you may stand around your barbecue grill, if you're cooking something really good and, and, and there's something about that that just stimulates a very pleasurable experience as you smell the, you know, whatever you're cooking on the grill and, and it stimulates a pleasurable sensation. God is trying to say, when my people worship me, it really brings pleasure to my heart. It's like a sweet aroma. It stimulates pleasure in God, it gives God a stimulating, pleasurable experience when we worship Him, when we make offerings and sacrifices unto Him. And again, the Bible tells us in, in the book of Hebrews that we should render to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips giving thanks unto His name. So as we sing at the beginning of a worship service and on Wednesday evenings as we then close out the Bible study and spend some time at the end of the service, just sitting in the Lord's presence and worshiping Him and lifting songs and lifting our hearts and our hands to Him and just sitting in His presence and giving Him a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks unto His name. Look, you need to realize that's not just so you leave here feeling better. Now, granted, that's a byproduct of it because the Bible says when we draw near to God, He always draws near to us. And granted, I, I, I need to worship. Because I'm inclined to worship. I'm created to worship. And if I don't worship God, I'll worship something else. I automatically worship something. We are created by design 
to be a people who worship something. Everybody worships something. Everybody has a God in their life. So I find, yes, it does benefit me to worship God because when I worship God, then I have less of an inclination to worship other things. And granted, when we worship God, you know, we experience that presence of his spirit and his, his, you know, he just ministers to us and we're refreshed. The Bible says times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord. So yes, we benefit from that. But that's a secondary byproduct. The primary reason we worship God is because it pleases God. It gives pleasure to him. It honors him. It blesses his heart. I mean, what can we give to him? I mean, does God really need the, the animal they bring or a few bucks we can throw in offering? God doesn't need that. But when God gets a human heart, when God gets a human heart that says, you know what? Everything else can wait. Nothing else matters right now. Nothing else is more important right now. And yes, I'm facing this or yes, I'm dealing with that. But God, I still love you. And God, you're still good and you're worthy. And to give you my fullness of attention, Jesus said, what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. Honoring God, loving God mentally and physically and emotionally and spiritually and just get that that is a sweet aroma to the Lord. It pleases him. And what a wonderful thing here. God picturing their worship in that way as he describes them making their offerings in the land. He goes on verse 13 to say, and all who are native born shall do these things in this manner in presenting an offering by fire. There it is again, a sweet aroma to the Lord. Always envision your worship that way. Any sacrifice you give to the Lord, anything that it brings pleasure to him, we should be seeking to bring pleasure to the heart of God. Verse 14, he also says, and if a stranger should dwell with you, so a foreigner, the idea is here is someone of the Gentile nations who's not a Jew, a descendant of Abraham, if they are with you, God says, or whoever is among you throughout your generations, and would present an offering like they do, made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord, just, look at this, just as you do, so he shall do. One ordinance shall be for the one of the assembly, for the stranger who dwells with you, an ordinance forever throughout your generations, as you are, so shall the stranger be before the Lord. One law, he says, verse 16, and one custom shall be for you, and for the stranger who dwells with you. So God gives this instruction, rather insightful. He says to his chosen people, he says to the congregation of Israel, look, when you have other people who join your ranks, and God wanted them to be a people who were open to embracing the Gentiles, to loving them, to welcoming them in, to worshiping Jehovah God with them. But God says, look, when, when other people assemble with you as the people of God and the congregation of God, notice the people of God were not to adjust the standards of worship or somehow offer exceptions to others who would join them to accommodate outsiders. Instead, they were to uphold the standard of this is how we worship God. And these are the standards that God requests. And we are about honoring and pleasing God. And those who came in among the congregation of God's people were instead to adhere to the standards that God had established and to submit themselves to the authority of God. It wasn't be the other way around. Now, I look at that and that smacks in the face of everything seeker sensitive, doesn't it? God says, look, when the people come in, 
don't make special exceptions and start doing things to somehow adjust the standards, tone it down or, or make, so that you can accommodate them. God says no. When they come into the presence of God and among the people of God, they should submit to the standards that God has prescribed and submit to the authority of God and God's presence among you. And he says one standard of worship, it's for you and for anyone who joins your ranks. And here God gives this important reminder to them because there's always that propensity for the sake of wanting to accommodate or make people feel comfortable that we can somehow begin to dishonor God almost wanting to have more acceptance and approval among others from outside. And look, not that God did not want them to love outsiders or welcome them in, but God said, but don't start watering things down for the sake of that. And here God encourages them, one rule, just as you do, if they want to worship, if they want to be in your midst, God says they must adhere and come under that same authority of worship. Verse 17, and again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, again, look what he says very confidently, when you come into the land, which I bring you. So again, God says, you're going to go in. When you come in, it's not a matter of if, God says. God's way more confident about what he's going to do in our lives than we are. They may be thinking, oh, if we get to land, you mean. No, God says when, not if. When you get into the land, and here's the reason why, God says, which I will bring you. Then it shall be, he says, when you eat of the bread of the land that you shall offer up a heave offering to the Lord. Now remember the, these terms, the wave offering and the heave offering. The wave offering spoke of something where they would sort of take it side to side. The heave offering where they would lift it up and down like if you were you know, wrestling and heaving someone over your shoulder or whatever, you'd you know, heave, uh, pick it up and lift forward. So this was meant something that they would move in a vertical way as they would present it to the Lord. You shall offer up a cake of your first ground meal as a heave offering. Uh, as a heave offering of the threshing floor, you shall offer it, again, verse 21, of the first of your ground meal, you shall give to the Lord a heave offering throughout your generation. So here God asked again that they would give to him the firsts of their crops, of all that the Lord allowed them to experience and that was yielded to them when he brought them into the land. And again, this is a response to what God did in his goodness for them. He says to them again there in verse 18, take notice, when you come into the land which I bring you, which I bring you. Again, if it was up to them, they'd never get into the land. Right? They, they just follow in the same footsteps as the prior generation. Best men are men at best. And God says, look, I, I know. here's how I know I'm gonna, you're going to get into the land. Because I'm taking responsibility to make sure that you get there. I'm going to do the work in you. It's not going to be a matter of your ability to fulfill or to accomplish or your great faithfulness. Philippians chapter 1, Paul says, being confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And again, as they're brought into the land, they're being brought into the promised experience God intended for them. In the same way for you and I, look, does God want us to come into that promised life of walking in the Spirit, experiencing victory over sin and taking territory in our Christian life and defeating the giants that would hold us back from experiencing everything that God intends for us? Yes, but how are we going to do that? Are we going to huff and puff in our spiritual muscles and blow the house down? Of course not. It happens as God's Spirit does it for us. We're responsible to do one thing, to yield and to believe. 
to be in the Word of God, to be in prayer, to be seeking the Lord. And as we yield to Him in faith and confidently believe, Lord, I believe you can bring me into that life of victory over sin. Lord, you said sin shall not have dominion over me. So, Lord, I take you at your word. I believe that you can give me victory. What does Paul say about the resurrection power of Christ in 1 Corinthians 15? Paul says there, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Victory isn't something we achieve. Victory is something the Bible says the Christian receives. We receive victory through Jesus as he brings us in through his resurrected life and his power into that promise of God, into the promised life that he intends for us in the spirit. And here God says, when you're brought into that land, all I ask you to do is to render back the first fruits to me. That was just a way for them to give back gratitude to the Lord and faith and appreciation. They would render the first of the fruit that they experienced back to God. But it was simply a way to honor the Lord in appreciation. Well, verse 22, he now begins to speak from 22 down to verse 29 about how to handle unintentional sins. He says there, verse 22, if you sin unintentionally, the idea is you know, doing something unknowingly or, or not sort of uh, you know, premeditated, you, you, you err off track or you don't do something that God had required to do because of neglect or whatever. So if you sin unintentionally and do not observe all these commandments which the Lord has spoken to Moses, and there was a lot he had told them to do. We, we just read of some of the ways they were to do the offerings and if they overlooked something and failed somehow to comply with what God required, that would be unintentional in sin and observance. If you fail to do those things, all that the Lord has commanded, verse 23, by the hand of Moses, from the day the Lord gave the commandment onward throughout your generations, then it will be, God says, if it's unintentionally committed, without the knowledge of the congregation, that the whole congregation shall then offer one young bull, that is once it becomes known that they failed and sense the guilt of this mistake they've made congregationally, one young bull is a burnt offering as a sweet aroma to the Lord with a grain offering and drink offering according to the ordinance and one kid of the goats as a sin offering. Verse 25, so the priest shall make atonement for the whole congregation of the children of Israel and it shall be forgiven them. For it was unintentional. They shall bring their offering an offering made by fire to the Lord and their sin offering before the Lord for the, their unintended sin, and it shall be forgiven the whole congregation of the children of Israel and the stranger who dwells among them because all the people did it unintentionally. So we take notice here, verse 22 down through verse 26, that sometimes, the Bible shows us here, that entire nations or congregations of God's people collectively can sort of collectively, corporately be guilty of certain things before God. God here speaks of the congregation being guilty of unintentional sin. He's going to say, verse 27, if a person sins unintentionally next, meaning an individual, just you or I as an individual worshiper. But here, verse 22 to 26, he's speaking about congregational sin. He's speaking about collective sin of the people nationally of Israel, which reminds us that sometimes a group of people collectively can become guilty of certain things before the Lord. 
Maybe, for example, as I said, not obeying or doing things that they should. There were areas that God laid out things in his word that he had commanded by the hand of Moses. And the Lord says, if you don't deserve, you don't observe those things because of neglect or because of lack of knowledge of those things or, or, or for whatever reason, they don't observe the things properly. Then God says, you're still guilty. It may be unintentional, but you're still guilty. And there would be, in a sense, guilt among the people or operating maybe in ways that are wrong. And, and, and God's people can do this. There can be times where in ignorance or neglect or because we permit or allow certain things collectively among a group of people that we can be in guilt and error before the Lord. And what God is saying here is when the error comes to light, however, it needs to be dealt with. When the error is exposed and conviction comes from God to say, look, collectively you're in error right now. Your congregation is in sin. You've done things that have displeased the Lord. It may have been unintentional in how you got there, but, but this is wrong. And you're not in the right place and you've allowed things or done things or overlooked things where you've made yourself guilty before God. God says, look, nonetheless, when that comes to light, it must be dealt with. They were still responsible for their guilt. And notice it still required atonement. It still required forgiveness just because it was done unintentionally did not remove responsibility. And it did not remove the consequence for that thing. Even though it was unintended, it still required forgiveness and removal of guilt. Look, I guess the best way we can illustrate this is, you know, you can eat a, a bowl of ice cream. You can go home tonight and you know, eat a monster bowl of mint chocolate chip ice cream or chunky monkey or rocky road or double death chocolate or something. And as soon as you're done eating that thing at 10 o'clock at night, you can say mm, that oh, that was really dumb. I regret doing that because then that. But look, the calories ain't going away. You see what I'm saying? You, you can unintentionally slip into the gluttony of the moment, but it doesn't take the calories away. The calories, it's still there. You can be really sorry about it. A person can make a mistake. A, a person can, you know, it doesn't take away the guilt, however. And here God says it still needed to be addressed, though it was unintentional, even unintentional sin still needed to be atoned for. It still needed to be forgiven. And the way it was to be forgiven is verse 25 said, the priest shall make atonement. The priest was to make atonement. What a wonderful thing that we as Christians have a great high priest. Jesus Christ, who's not only the sacrifice for our sins, but he's also the priest who makes the offering for our sins so that we can have atonement and that we can be forgiven. And what God is reminding the people of Israel about here is, look, if something becomes amiss in the midst of you collectively, you need to address that. You need to deal with it. When there's collective group sin, congregationally, nationally, God does not say, well, it's okay to just, okay, well, yeah, let's just kind of brush that under the rug and let's just keep going on the journey. God says, no, no, no. You hit the balls button, you deal with it. There needs to be repentance and confession and ownership and it needs to be dealt with and the guilt must be removed. It must be atoned for. And the Lord says, if that is done, then forgiveness is available. And he offers that forgiveness. He says, the whole congregation, it shall be forgiven, the whole congregation. Same thing, verse 27, for an individual life. He says, if a person sins unintentionally, then he shall bring a female goat in its first year as a sin offering. 
So the priest shall make atonement for the person who sins unintentionally. When he sins unintentionally before the Lord to make atonement for him. And again, it shall be forgiven him. You shall have one law for him who sins unintentionally, for him who is native born among the children of Israel and for the stranger who dwells among them. So again, individually, notice, it is possible and more than that, we are all living examples that how often do we sin unintentionally? Where it's not like we're in a premeditated way saying, you know, I just, I just really feel like I want to displease God today. But no, in the midst of a conversation, some, something comes out of your mouth that afterwards you sense a little bit of, of grief from the Holy Spirit or conviction that well, I, I, I shouldn't have said that. Or, or maybe you don't say it, but just the attitude that happens in your heart or the thought that comes into your mind and afterwards the Holy Spirit brings that conviction. Again, it wasn't like you intentionally, but, but we're flawed, we're, we're sinful, we're so prone to make mistakes in our human weakness how often do we sin continuously, unintentionally? We fail, we fall short. And, and look, as the Bible speaks here of unintentional sin, Romans 3.23 says we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Again, the idea is to miss the mark. There's a bullseye and as you're trying to hit the bull, you may even try really hard to hit the bullseye. And even if you're good, even if you're a great marksman, you may hit that bullseye nine times. But you're going to miss eventually. Everybody misses the mark. Everybody falls short. There's unintentional sin and failure. And this is a reminder to all of us as worshipers of God, just like God speaks to them, that even if we don't try to sin, you will. So if you've got a perfection complex, you're going to torture yourself. And if you've got a perfection complex, more than that, that's arrogant and you don't even really appreciate Jesus very much. Because you're despising what Jesus did. Do you think Jesus would have come to this earth and lived among humanity let himself be spit on and mocked and mistreated and beaten and scourged and pierced to a cross and abused and humiliated? If you could be perfect and if somehow you could be a good enough boy or a good enough girl to always impress God with your great behavior or keep up an image of how you're such a perfect person and you never make mistakes. Look, be careful of that. Be careful of that. It's, it's, it's a disesteeming of what Christ has done. It's a measure of, of arrogancy and, and it, it's going to be self-torture. We're all going to sin. We're all going to fail. Whether we want to or not, we're going to fail. And even if we don't think we're sinful, we still are. And you know, this is like sometimes you're trying to talk to somebody and you're trying to, what, what, what do you mean I'm a sinner? What do you mean I'm a sinner? I went to church, I did my classes and this and that and I helped pay for the stained glass windows and I volunteered, you know, the hospital and I do this and that. What, what do you mean you're trying to tell me I'm a sinner? I don't sin. Well, look, God says here, sin is, can be an unintentional thing so often. The point being this, even if people don't try to sin, they will. And even if people don't think they're sinful, God says you are. Because the standard is so righteous. The standard is so holy. God says you may not be trying to sin. You may not think you're a sinner. But I assure you from my perspective, you are. You are. God says it doesn't have to be willful, aggressive, brazen, you know, evil. Well, compared to all those people are sinners. No, God says no. People sin unintentionally all the time. 
And notice, even unintentional sin requires what? Forgiveness. So even if you don't mean to sin, and even if you don't think you sin, you will and you do, and it needs forgiveness. It needs that guilt removed, and it's only as Jesus Christ removes that guilt. Isn't it wonderful to know that we can be forgiven, that we shall be forgiven because of what Christ has done? 1 John 1, 9 promises to us if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God speaks to them here how even if it was unintentional, there needed to be atonement for that sin made by the priest that they might experience that forgiveness. Now, verse 30, he speaks of something different. Notice, he says, verse 30, but the person who does anything presumptuously, whether he is native born or a stranger, that one brings reproach on the Lord and he shall be cut off from among the people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. The idea is either excommunicated or at times executed, put to death, as we've seen in the Old Testament under the law, his guilt shall be upon him. So now God speaks of something different, not unintentional sin, shortcomings, failures, but he speaks now of presumptuous sin. The idea here, a person sinning presumptuously against God in defiance to his word, the idea is deliberate. This refers to you know, that which is willful and defiantly going against what you clearly know is wrong. Interesting, the Hebrew term that's used there speaks of doing something with a high hand. The idea is this. It's the best way I, I, I thought is I, I can illustrate this, that it may be uh, visually helpful. Whatever. Look, you really shouldn't do that. I mean, that's a, Whatever. I'm going to do whatever I want. Or, or kind of a, yeah, you know, okay, 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 yeah, just, okay. Just, it's that arrogant kind of, look, I'm going to do what I want to do. And I don't really care. It, it's that arrogant, deliberate, willful, when someone clearly knows where the boundaries are, someone understands without confusion what the Word of God says, what the Bible teaches, what God requires, but yet there's a defiant, deliberate disobedience when someone knowingly disregards the word of God in a selfish pursuit and kind of with a high hand, almost raising their fist to God. What, what, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? I'm going to do what I want to do anyway. And that selfish pursuit of some sin, that, that whatever kind of brazen attitude, any person acts as if God's word is unimportant or simply unworthy, if you would, to be honored or obeyed. That's what he's referring to here. Someone who does this, who brings reproach on the Lord, he says, verse 31, because they've despised the word of the Lord. That word despised is a term, you know, we think of the word despised always as like hatred. You know, I despise him. The word despise really, originally, initially, just meant to to devalue or disesteem something. It wasn't so much hatred towards something or animosity as much as it was just an apathetic attitude, just disesteeming, devaluing something as if somehow it, acts, it just has no credibility. It's not that important. It's just whatever, whatever. It's really not that important. It's not worthy of honor or obedience or allegiance. And notice, if you would, verse 30 and 31, quite a difference here. You notice for presumptuous sin, there's no sacrifice available. God doesn't offer a 
way of provision for forgiveness of sin according to the law. Now, thank goodness we're not under the law. But, but God took a very severe track on presumptuous sin. Again, where the attitude of the heart is different. And that's what God sees. That attitude of the heart. That rebellious streak, that disesteeming of the word of God and its importance and, and just kind of apathetically pushing it aside and pursuing what we want anyway or, or just kind of disregarding, well, nothing's going to happen. I'm just going to do what I want to do. God, God saw that quite from a different light. There was an extreme consequence for such. God said they would be cut off, excommunicated, or at times, according to certain areas of the law, actually executed. Now, verse 32 gives us an example as if somehow they needed a case example. God says this, so it's clearly known. Now look what happens, verse 32. Now while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. And they put him under guard because it had not been explained what should be done to him. The idea is how they should handle this. They knew Exodus 31 said that they were to put this person to death according to the law, but they didn't know, well, well, how do we go about that? This is the first time that something like this has kind of happened so defiantly. This, this guy's just disregarded a clear commission and command of God regarding the Sabbath day. Then the Lord said to Moses, verse 35, the man shall surely be put to death, all the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So as the Lord commanded Moses, all the congregation brought him outside of the camp and they stoned him with stones and he died. Now, you might want to jot in your notes or in your Bible here. It's been a while since we were there. Exodus 31, verse 12 through 17. There the Lord gives again Exodus 20, initially he gives the Sabbath day observance to the children of Israel where they were to rest on that seventh day in commemoration of God resting from his works of creation and they were to do the same. Exodus 31, God says that it was to be a perpetual ordinance between him and the children of Israel. It was a symbolic covenant that God gave to the children of Israel to observe the Sabbath. I always encourage you to remember that because then when people try and say, we're supposed to keep Sabbath, we'll tell them to go read Exodus 31. That was a covenant God gave between the Jews, the Israelites, and himself, as was circumcision. I don't see people arguing, why are we still observing circumcision? Now, I don't mean to be humorous, but because that was something God gave to Israel. And God gave the Sabbath to Israel too. Now, we know from a New Testament perspective, ultimately these things are fulfilled in Christ. That Christ, Colossians 2 says, is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. He's our Sabbath rest. It's in Christ. We don't observe a day. We rest from all of our labors spiritually in Jesus. We rest in Jesus that we're right with God because of what Jesus has done for us. And Christ is our Sabbath. He, he, he is the one that we rest in and, and cease from our spiritual labors and know that we're okay and we can rest and just reflect on the goodness of God and worship God. But God gave this very important requirement for the children of Israel to observe Sabbath that they would be set apart as a people and it had its purposes for them as well. And so serious, God said this, Exodus 31, you shall keep the Sabbath, it's holy to you, Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. So God clearly told them. This wasn't a questionable issue. They knew clearly if you disregard the Sabbath, 
It was a capital offense. It was something God gave, and God gave a clear consequence of judgment. And now here's this man. He's out picking up sticks in broad daylight on the Sabbath. After God just said, the person who sins presumptuously. Whatever. Sabbath schmabbath. I'm hungry. I want to cook me some pottage, so I need to get some sticks. Make me a st- Sabbath schmabbath. And so in broad daylight, he walks out into the camp. And look, we look at this, and it says here that God says to put him to death, which really is just a fulfillment of his word. Sometimes we want to look at, wow, that's so severe. And put a guy to death for playing pickup sticks I mean, on the Sabbath. Day. That's kind of strong there, isn't it? But listen, we have to understand the thought here is this man very presumptuously and defiantly. Here's the thing. He thought he could disregard God's word and just get away with it. And his mentality and attitude was that he could disregard and disobey God's word with no consequence. He could do as he pleased. Oh, if you strict people want to observe the scripture and be all hung up, look, really, whatever. I mean, come on, let's pick up sticks. And God's really going to... I know the Bible. Yeah, I hear what the Bible says, but look... I, And he thought that nothing would take place in his life and there would be no consequence or accountability and he could do as he pleased and nothing would happen. And God, as a very clear case example, said, it doesn't work that way. I'm a God who keeps my word. Every angle, every authority, every promise, every truth, I keep my word. And so God here gives the edict for him to be put to death and he's stoned and loses his life. Now again, let me just say, Aren't you really glad we're not under the law? Boy, passage like that, that could boost Sunday morning attendance, huh? Don't be out picking up sticks on the Sabbath. (laughs) I'm really glad we're not under the law still. But let me just say this. Though we're not under the law, the principles still apply. First of all, this. The Bible says in the New Testament in Galatians, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. And what a man sows, that he shall also reap. And we can be forgiven for our failures and our mistakes, but God says there are consequences. If you sow seeds of disobedience, if you sow to the flesh, God says you're going to reap corruption. And we need to never think that we can mock God or disregard God's word and live in contradiction and nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to happen. That's a grave deception of the devil and a foolish attitude of our flesh. And another thing is this, is when we knowingly disregard God's word, number one, Just like this guy who lost life, when you knowingly disregard God's word, if I knowingly disregard God's word, I am putting my life at jeopardy. Because there are some things in God's word that are given to us as ways to keep us healthy and keep us alive by living the way God said to live. And not to mention, when we knowingly disregard God's word as people, I'll tell you one thing that always happens, you will put to death your spiritual life you'll lose and die out spiritually the life and relationship that you had with God if you enter into that path. Well, look how our chapter finishes. It says, verse 37, Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel. Tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a blue thread. Again, blue we've seen is is always a picture, a a symbolic color of heaven. The the skies were blue. They were, when they used blue, thinking upon the heavenly things. So they put blue thread in the tassels of the corners and you shall have the tassel that you may, look why God says, look upon it. And remember the commandments of the Lord and do them that you may not follow 
the harlotry to which your own heart and your own eyes, God knows his people, are inclined, and that you may remember to do all my commandments and be holy for your God. So what does God do? He now sets into place this very really gracious and somewhat practical way to help his people avoid failure and sin. Look, God finds no pleasure in disciplining his children. Just like a parent. I mean, look, did I spank my kids? You bet your bottom dollar. <laughs> did I ever one time enjoy it? No. I hate it. There were times where I remember talking, look, would you please? You know, it's almost like you, you're doing everything you can to try and convince them to do the right thing so you don't have to apply the Board of Education to the seat of learning. Would you to think about it one more time here? Do you do you really want to want to think that through one? No parent enjoys that. God's a perfect, loving, gracious father. God doesn't like bringing discipline and consequence for sin. The Bible says that there's no there's no no pleasure in the death of the wicked for God. And so God here says, look, let me create a way to help avoid more sin. I know they're inclined towards sin and inclined towards error. So God tells them to put these tassels on the corners of their garments with blue thread, a reminder of heaven, and they were a people to be heavenly reminded. And God says, I want you to do this in a way whereby as you look upon those tassels, you'll remember, verse 39, the commandments of the Lord so that you do them and don't follow the harlotry to which your heart and eyes are inclined that you may remember to do all my commandments. So God says, look, this will be a way that as they would put on that garment in the morning and as they look at it during the day and they'd see those tassels and they'd take it off, they would remember, hey, we are people who are to be heavenly minded. We're a people who live according to the word of God. And it would be just a visual stimulus to put them remembrance of the word. So why? So they'd stay in healthy relationship with God. So that they would remember to obey God's word rather than their appetites or temptation. And so that it would protect and preserve them from sin and error. Because God knew that's what they were prone towards. God says, I know you're prone towards that. And he says, I want you to have the remembrance of my word because it will have a what? A restraining effect upon your life so that you don't follow the harlotry that your heart and eyes are inclined toward. God knows his word has a restraining effect in his people's lives. Psalm 119, the psalmist uh, indicates this. He says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Notice he doesn't say I've hidden your word in my head. If you're somebody who really likes to study the Bible so that you can quote scriptures and show your intellectual, spiritual depth of knowledge and grasp of the scripture, hey, great, knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. Love for Jesus that says, I want this word not to be in my head, I want it to be in my heart so that it governs my soul, so that it reigns over my heart because it's hard to sin against love. And when you hide God's word in your heart, and it resonates with your heart, then when the temptation comes or the, the, the opportunity to sin comes and you're starting to be inclined towards sin, the word of God, like a, a, a floodlight on high beams on a car, shines into your life and says, don't do this. And the authority of the word has a restraining effect. He says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And it has that very powerful effect as it brings us into remembrance of the Word of God. Now, I want to just leave with you something to do a little more pondering uh, as we close our study this evening, and that's this. Matthew chapter 9, verse 20 and 21, and Matthew 14, verse 34 and 35. There you see two occasions in the New Testament when people want to touch the hem 
of Jesus' garment. Do you know what they wanted to touch? It was this. Because they saw those tassels on the garments of Jesus as a Jewish rabbi and it reminded them of the word of God. So they said, if I can just, remember the woman with the hemorrhaging? She said, if I can touch the hem of his garment, my issue of blood, it will be healed like that. What was she remembering? Our God said that he is Jehovah Rapha. And as she saw the hem of Jesus' garment, she said, our God heals. And I don't know about all this other religious hypocrisy, but that man, he seems to be the real thing. He reminds me of the word of God. And see, it's interesting, again, as we said Sunday morning, as you know the Old Testament, it's amazing how the New Testament begins to come to light and to open up greater ways. Let's stand together. Let's.